there, everyone. It's Kenneth Dean, the Dean of Metal, along with my co-host, Chris Kay. And welcome back to another exciting episode of Debating Metal. This week, we call out the Prince of Darkness, Ozzy Osbourne, as we pit his first two post-Randy albums head-to-head against each other with Bark at the Moon versus The Ultimate Sin. Kenneth and I are going to go over all the tracks on both albums, offer our opinions on each one, and then at the end, we'll determine which one we think is the better album. We've also got Rusty Metal and Freshly Forged coming up in a moment, but I wanted to remind you, if you enjoy the show, please hit subscribe on your favorite platform and get the show delivered to your favorite device every week. We also want to interact with you guys and read your opinions, so if you like what we had to say or just want to rip us a new one, send us an email to debatingmetal at gmail.com or DM us on our Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. We're also now on YouTube, so be sure to subscribe and ring that YouTube bell to be alerted each week when we drop a new episode. So, Kenneth, what did you pull out of the archives this week? This week, I pulled out of the archives. We're heading all the way back to 1987 with Dokken and the Back for the Attack album. Uh, It sounds like it's coming out of nowhere, and it probably is. Um, This album was released, like I said, in 1987. It was released on Electro Records. It was produced by Neil Kernan of Queensryche fame. It was recorded at one-on-one recordings in North Hollywood, California, Music Grinder in Hollywood, California, the Total Access Recording in Redondo Beach, California, Rumbo Recorders in Canoga Park, California, and Can-Am Studios in Reseda, California. So it was recorded in several different locations. And a pretty interesting fact is it doesn't sound like it's uh, very different from song to song. There's a, it's, it does sound like a cohesive album, considering that they have to break down and reset up, you know, certain things every time they go to a different studio. I mean, it, it could have been where it just drums at one place and you know bass at another or, or whatever, or vocals in one one studio. But still, nonetheless, being all over the place does have its times when things may sound a little bit different. But regardless, this is Dawkins' fourth album and. It's the last album before they broke up in 1989. The album contains 13 tracks, including Kiss of Death, Heaven Sent, Burning Like a Flame, Mr. Scary, and Dream Warriors. Now, Dream Warriors was released 10 months prior to the release of the album as the theme song to the movie Nightmare on Elm Street, Dream Warriors. So it was recorded specifically for the movie, and then as they decided to you know, put together a full-length album, they kept that song on the album so i it, and for what it's worth for being a docking song it's a pretty cool song it is a cool song i, I mean i like i like that freddy movie um i really like the the first one is great the the, the third one's great the second one i, I think everybody kind of knows how silly and, and weird it is um but those two movies for me are are the only ones that i just really enjoy and part of that is the Dawkins soundtrack. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the the movies are good. I mean, for what it's worth, I mean, they're they're cheesy '80s horror movies. But at the same time, you know, back then that's what they were. They're not like they are now. So, Nightmare on Elm Street three was a very good movie in the trilogy of movies they had. Because then after that, it just kind of went sideways, and I was like, oh, come on, you're getting ridiculous now. But nonetheless, it, it it was a good song, good movie, all that. Uh, Mr. Scary is a rocking ass instrumental that has some really cool riffs, some really good hooks, and some harmonies. 
all for being an instrumental. That's pretty pretty impressive. They did a really good job on that song, uh, and I didn't even have to hear Don sing. So that's that's a that's a benefit. <laughs> <laughs> As you can tell, I have an issue with Don Dokken and his singing because it's so light. You and I have talked about it before. His singing is so light; it doesn't add up to how the how heavy the band could be at times. But uh, he made it where it was like eh, it's Dokken. Anyway. Uh, I have this as Dawkins' most mature album for that time period. And while Tooth and Nail might be their best album, Back for the Attack is a pretty close second in my opinion. I, I really like the grouping of songs that are on here. Very similarly to the way I like the songs on Tooth and Nail. I think the album in between, which was Under Lock and Key, to me seemed a little scattered. Uh, almost like they were trying too hard. And they kind of missed the, the 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 boat on a couple songs, even though they have some really good songs on there, uh, and it kept the momentum going. To me, this album is much better than Under Lock and Key, and is just under Tooth and Nail. So that's my pick of the week. It's still available. Pick it up whatever you can. Listen to it on Spotify or any of the other streaming services. Give it a shot. Yeah, I mean we've discussed before. I'm I'm not a big Dawkins fan myself, but they they do have some good tracks you know, in, in their total career that I'll listen to. I don't, I don't typically go out of my way to listen to them. Um, but dream warriors is actually on my, my big playlist. So yeah, uh, definitely check that one out. All right. This week for freshly forged, I've got a band that I've been a fan of for a long time. I haven't really talked much about them because, uh, they, they just really haven't had that many great releases in recent, uh, history. Um, in 2018, they released Revenant, which I thought was kind of a, a downturn for the band. Um, but before that, they had two really great albums. Uh, their first and their third album, uh, Divinity of War and The Path of Apotheosis. Um, really enjoyed both of those. Uh, so this band is called Inferi. They have two new singles out, uh, Vile Genesis, uh, or off of their new album, Vile Genesis. And... Uh, the tracks are called Simeon Hive and Mesmeric Horror. And um, if you're a fan of melodic death metal, uh, like I've mentioned in the past, uh, I, I, I liked Early In Flames. Um, I'm a big fan of Obscura. And I've mentioned, of course, many times one of my favorite bands, Death. Um, it's more in the vein of that kind of music than some of the other death metal that we've talked about on our show. Um, so definitely check these out. Uh, it's not a lot I can say right now uh, as the album's not coming out until September. Uh, but the two tracks that I've heard, they're a huge step up from the last album. And I'm very excited to hear them kind of going back to what they sounded like before. Awesome. I definitely want to give that a, a spin and a listen to. Um, I am completely unfamiliar with them, so it uh, should be pretty interesting for me. Um, I don't know what else to say about it. <laughs> so, but yeah, I'll definitely check it out. You know, I'm pretty sure it's on Spotify where I can listen to it. Yes, available on Spotify, um, Bandcamp, etc. I, I, I found them on YouTube as well. All right, cool. All right, so that brings us to our main topic of the evening, and that is Ozzy Osbourne, Bark at the Moon versus The Ultimate Sin. Uh, these are the first two post-Randy albums. Uh, they both feature Jakey Lee on guitar, so I think that was 
pretty much the the big uh, impetus as to why I chose I, I suggested that we use these two albums as a, as a comparison. Um, there's there's too much disparity in, in some of the other albums, and they they kind of go a little weird for me as far as all the Zach albums are out there, but these two are pretty cool. I think there's, there's a, a lot of similarities to me with these two albums after listening to them. So, um, bark at the moon was recorded or actually was released on November 8th, 1983. It was released on Epic CBS records. It was recorded at Ridge farm studios in Rusper, England. It was produced by Ozzy, Bob Daisley and Max Norman. This album has sold 3 million copies in the U S. Um, do you want to go first on this one, uh, or do you want me to go first? I I would probably prefer to go first on this one. Go ahead, unless you. No, that works for me. Okay, good. All right. All right. So the first song on the album is uh, "Bark at the Moon." Uh, "Bark at the Moon." I mean, most metalheads will know the video, uh, especially if they if if they watch if they like Ozzy. This is a killer song. I mean, it's a killer riff. It's high energy. One of my favorite Ozzy songs. This is Jakey e. Lee's debut track. And he shows off on this track why Ozzy chose him to take over the guitar duties. I mean, it is, it just, especially in the video, because it just, it just, he fit in very well. He does some killer guitar work. And the song itself is a really good song. So uh, kudos to to Jake and and I say kudos to Jake because Jake did write a majority of the guitar riffs on this album if not all of them uh, along with Bob Daisley writing the lyrics and, and uh, adding some accompaniment to the the music. Ozzy probably did not have much to do with it maybe a couple of words here and there as far as melodies are concerned. Um but if you look at the record you'll see that Ozzy has all the album credits or all the songwriting credits. And I'm, even back then, when I was 14 years old and I got this record, I looked and I go, I didn't know Ozzy wrote music. <laughs> even, <laughs> even back then, I knew that. I was like, I didn't realize. I said, wow, Ozzy's good. He wrote all the songs by himself. <laughs> he had no yeah. help. <laughs> so there's so, a story I, that um, that basically Sharon Osbourne tricked or forced uh, uh, Jakey e. Lee out of his writing credits by saying he was she was going to fire him and have somebody record all his parts again and he was new and un, untested you know and he didn't have the history to to fight back and i i would assume that's probably true i mean bob daisley and lee kerslake even though he was not in the band at that time both backed up that story um it, and it, and Bob Daisley had a similar story about his experience with with the band. So, um, yeah, it's it's tough to believe that Ozzy wrote all the music. <laughs> but Bob Daisley's uh, relationship with Ozzy is is one of the strangest because he it's is <laughs> well, he it, yeah, it's awkward. I mean, he's been a close friend of Ozzy's for such a long time, and he actually has zero problems with Ozzy himself. It, it's more of a problem that he has with Sharon and her business dealings. And that's pretty much what happens with everybody. I mean, most people love Ozzy, but, you know, it's, Sharon is a questionable character in the in the relationship there. But this is not, we're not here to attack Sharon, although she leaves herself open for that. <laughs> but um, it is true, Jake, you know, 
uh, stood up for himself on the second album, and so he has the songwriting credits on there. So everything you hear on these two albums is pretty much Jake's songwriting. Um, so anyway, let's move on. Uh, what What's your thoughts on Bark at the Moon? Well, just before we move on, adding to that, uh, Bob Daisley has a story that he was told by Sharon to write the album. So he says a large part of it was actually written by him. So I don't know what to believe exactly there. Oh, you mean like so, like Jake didn't have anything to do with it, mean? No, he wrote riffs, but but this was essentially a Bob Daisley album. I get you. I mean, you could tell he wrote the lyrics because um, mm-hmm. that's just typical Bob stuff. Um, and I, and I kind of mentioned, and we'll talk about it a little bit, but this is a very keyboard-heavy album. Mm-hmm. And so I could see how that would lend itself more to being a Bob writing than it would be to a Jake writing because Jake is a guitar player and Jake yeah. is writing stuff, you know, he's writing riffs and he's writing chords. He's not writing, uh, you know, piano pieces and string arrangements and that there's a lot of that in this album. And so it, it's I could, just I all up in that. the air. Mm-hmm. You know? yeah. We'll, we'll probably never know all the details, which is right. sad. But anyway, um, to, you know, talk about my end of, of, Bark at the Moon. I mean, it's a classic song. It's a killer riff. The solo's great. Um, it really shows that, you know, Ozzy and crew still have it. Um, you know, because the passing of Randy Rhodes was was huge. I mean, Randy brought something to the band that nobody else could. And to have somebody come in and try to fill those shoes, you can't, you almost have to give them different shoes. You know, he can't, he can't feel, fill the same shoes. And that's exactly what Jakey, Jakey Lee did where he, he didn't try to just be a clone. You know, he came in, did his own thing and did it extremely well. And, um, yeah, Bark at the Moon is a great start to the album. To me, the energy never quite hits this level again in the album, which I think is kind of a a downfall for the total album. But at the same time, there's still a lot of good tracks we're going to talk about. Um, and this is to me is the highlight of the album. Absolutely, and and I agree with you on 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 the the point that you made about where the energy never really hits uh, again on this album. And I and I'm gonna say it has a lot to do with this next song. And the reason why it has a lot to do with this next song is because you're no different, which is the second song in the album. I, I I'm confused by the placement of this song at number two. I. Uh, a hundred percent. You have I totally agree. Exactly. I mean, you have Bark at the Moon that just comes out ripping, and then you go to, and I can't even call it a ballad. It's a slower song, but the pace is kind of a little bit quicker than a typical ballad, and the 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 theme of the song is is not, it's not a love song type of song, but it just it, to me it just. It's a cheesy song, very keyboard heavy, right? And it, while the verse has a good melody it, it, and the chorus has a hook, it's a slower song that just drags the energy down that you just had from this super opening song. Mm-hmm. And and I think that's what hurts You're No Different. Because if it stands alone by itself and you put it somewhere else on the album, it's probably a better song. But coming out of Bark at the Moon, it's like, what? I mean, it's just like, yeah. it totally blows it. It's it's one of those tracks that's a slow burner, and it takes time to build towards the end. And it to me, it, 
it feels like so many times when we've talked about these full albums, we talk about a song like this being at like track seven, eight or nine on an album somewhere, you know, somewhere at the end. It doesn't make sense in this placement. And especially when you consider this is a different song listing than on the European release, which has a, a list that makes more sense. And we'll talk. I think we need to talk about that maybe a little later. Okay. When we get to the track that was the original opener. All righty. Well, song number three is Now You See It, Now You Don't. Um, and that song would actually make more sense as number two in, from what I know, because I don't, I don't, didn't even real uh, look at the list of the European track listing. To me, you know, of all the songs that are on here, it, it could be one of the, the songs that could be number two. Um, and it doesn't bother me if it was, but regardless, it wasn't. It is the number three song on the album. It's a mid-tempo heavy song. It's got a cool riff on it. Um, you know, oddly enough, the chorus has got this high-pitched Ozzy giving us, you know, a good hook. But at the same time, you know, it's, it's I don't know, there's something about this song that's very Randy Rhodes to me. Um, you know, it gives me a vibe like it could have been on on maybe the first album, more of the first album than the second album, but still it could have been a song from then. And of course, Bob Daisley's one of the songwriters on it, so that that tends to say, yeah, okay, because he was one of the people that wrote songs on the first two albums. You know, what what's your opinion on that? Um, so it has that kind of cheesy uh flair to it that yeah, like you said, kind of feels like the first album. Um, it goes back to more of like the darker sound of like Ozzy's Sabbath roots, you know? So it has that vibe to it, but it also has these really cheesy keyboard effects that just pop in from time to time. If I mean, if you really listen to the, like, you may not even notice them unless you're really paying attention. And I, 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 I'm sure I did before over the years, but it, but like listening to it back now, I was like, okay, that, that really dates it to when the album, you know, came out. Oh yeah. Because it's effects that they don't use now. You know? No, I mean, the, the, even the guitar solo blends in with those effects because the guitar solos, it's a good solo and it's very atmospheric, but it, because it's atmospheric, and I think that's the reason why it's atmospheric, it blends in with all the keyboards that are floating all over the place. And that's part of the whole production of this album. If you listen to the album beginning to end, you're going to hear keyboards left and right. Some of it's subtle, some of it really in your face. And it's, I guess, you know, for the time, 1983, it's neither here nor there, and it's not bad or good, but it definitely at times detracts from the song. So, but like Mr. Crowley has keyboard effects, but Mr. Crowley is somehow timeless, whereas this feels very 80s. Oh, yeah. Well, then it has everything to do with the production of the album. Mm -hmm. All right. So now that brings us to the the last song on side one or song four, because there's only eight songs on the album uh, Rock and Roll Rebel. And I like this song. I, this it's an awesome riff, and the the drum performance is is on this song is stellar as well. I like 
what I hear. You know, there's the subtleties with, you know, tapping on the ride. You know, there's, there's a lot of cool things going on with the song. It's got a great melody. It's got a great pre-chorus that just brings you right into that, you know, rock and roll rebel chorus. So I like that a lot. Um, and, and so this, this, the solo on this song um, particularly has a, a, a Randy Rhodes vibe to it, to me at least. So there, I don't know if it's like a tribute or he had been listening to some of the songs on the first couple albums, but there's something about this solo on this song that kind of, you know, like Jake was almost, you know, um, uh, having Randy play through him or something like that because it was really... To me, it reminded me a lot of, of Randy. And in fact, the whole song, to me, has a vibe from, from the first two albums. So it's, it, I like this song a lot. This is a really, really cool song. Um, so what, what's your opinion on it? It's, you know, it's one of those 80s anthems that certainly appeals to a certain group of people. Um, you know, it's, it's one of those things like, um, I want to rock and roll all night or, you know, something like that where... You know, it's it's exciting at a show, but for me, I just never got into those kind of anthemic song songs like that. Um, you know, it it in the context of the lyrics and what it's talking about, it makes a lot of sense because back then Ozzy was really being demonized by the media. You know, it, it's a theme that comes up in a few other songs throughout. You know, the next few years in his career, um, but it has a really good solo in the middle. And so, you know, for me, it's not one of my favorites, but I certainly get why people like it. Fair enough. So flipping over to side two or skipping to the next track, however you want to look at it. Uh, Center. Oh, before we move on. So the other thing about Rock and Roll Rebel is this is actually the album opener on the European edition. Oh, okay, That's interesting. So you have Rock and Roll Rebel, then Bark at the Moon. Which makes a lot more sense. Oh, definitely makes a lot more sense. That definitely, I mean, I, and I could see how that would, would, you know, you have Bark at the Moon where you, well, you have Rock and Roll Rebel, which, you know, the the riff opening is pretty cool, you know, almost kind of like, mm-hmm. and, and it's not the same type of song, but how I Don't Know is not necessarily this super fast song, right? But it, it uh it leads into but it's a good album opener oh no it's yeah. a great album opener but it, that leads into Crazy Train where this one you know Rock and Roll Rebel leads into Bark at the Moon so yeah that I can see that and that makes a hell of a lot more sense but mm-hmm. yeah. and then when you slow things down it makes more sense too absolutely because you've already had the two tracks that kept the energy going so you see why that makes such a difference exactly definitely all right so now. Flipping the flipping over to side two or skipping over to song number five, whichever way you want to look at it, this or center of eternity. Um, I I like the church bell intro with the men's choir. Um, it's uh, it's it's quote unquote scary because it's Ozzy. You know, you get this whole thing with Ozzy, and he's always done a lot of that chorus type effect when when it comes to the intro of his shows. And things like that, and he's always had keyboards and the, the, the gothic soundingness to them. So that is that's Ozzy's style. Um, it's also Rainbow style uh, <laughs> with the keyboards. But the, it, it's it's one of these things where I, I like it. It fits Ozzy's vibe. And the keyboard intro in this is very reminiscent to me of Mr. Crowley. 
but then the song just goes in another direction and it picks up a lot of speed from there and it rocks pretty hard. It's a pretty cool song in that regards. So, um, I like the hook on the chorus. It's probably the fastest that, that Ozzy has sung on a verse on any song that I know of from what I can recall. Um, and I really like the solo on the, on the song. Jake does a great job of balancing the melody and the speed. Uh, and he does that a lot in, in all his solos. He does a good job of that. But this one in particular stands out to me. You know, and it's got some great licks at the end that, that interplay with the chorus. So that's pretty cool. Yeah, you you called it a a men's choir intro. I I thought of it as a like a funeral procession, you know, something yeah, kind of like playing into that that vibe of of, you know, Ozzy the the dark prince, you know. Um yeah, it's a fast-paced rocker right after that intro, so it, it you know, it gets you you know, it's it's the side two opener essentially. So it gives you that creepy vibe, but then takes you right into a, a, a rocker and it, you know, it has its, its ups and downs, but that's, it's really well paced, you know, in the midpoint, it slows down a bit, but that takes you right into the, the, the blazing solo at which I agree. I, I really like the solo on this track and then it picks up right through the end of the song. So I think it's a really well paced track and a good opener for side two. Uh, yep, for sure. Um, also, this is called Forever in Europe, and Ozzy on tour called it Forever as well. Well, someone needs to make up their mind about this shit, really. <laughs> <laughs> and, that, and like again, it's one of those things that goes back to when we were talking about uh, was it um what was that band <laughs> um, from England? A oh, White Snake. I this is I knew who you were talking about. <laughs> this this you know, it goes back to the same stuff that happened with White Snake. You know, you got a song here, a single there, you don't put it on the album, they do put it on the album, they change the, the the track versions, they you know, it's it's like come on, people, just make it one album, you know? But regardless, I get it. Um Song number six. It's executives thinking they know better than the artists. You know? Yeah, well, you know, in some cases in some cases, it works, okay? When when John Kaladner and Geffen Records told uh, David Coverdale that they needed to do something different, it worked. It worked really well, you know? But other times, it just doesn't make sense. I mean, just I'm going to put out a single for a song. Usually, you put out a single, and it's featured on the album because you want to sell the album, so you put the single on the album, and, and people buy the album. You know, but it didn't work that way for the Beatles. It didn't work that way for the Rolling Stones. You know, it didn't work that way for for certain other English bands that were crossing over into the United States. And that lasted for a long time. But finally, you know, artists started putting things together, saying, you know what, or taking control of their careers more and said, you know what, this is going to, you know, go on the album. That's it. But I rant. (laughs) Um, so tired of song number six. Um, this song is so weird to me. This is what I consider Bob Daisley's attempt at trying to get a song on the charts. Uh, it's a ballad. And I say Bob because I think, I truly think Bob wrote this song beginning to end. Um, there's not a lot of, um, it's not very riff heavy. 
Uh, it's more piano heavy than anything else, and there's a lot of string arrangements in this one. So I don't think that Jake had a lot to do with this song. Um, so that being said, you know, there's a it's trying to be a love song, but part of the problem is that the pace of the actual song is too fast for being for being a slow song. It's too fast, and. And uh, I think this song probably would have benefited from a slower arrangement and probably would have made the words mean a little bit more. Um, you know, and then on top of that, if you listen to this really carefully, this song has a different production than most of the songs on the rest of the album. It's a little bit drier on the vocals. It's a little bit more uh, snappy on the drums. It's, it doesn't have all that compression that most of the rest of the album has. So that that's another thing you could tell that this, this song was meant to be different, um, but it it to me it failed. The song is not bad, but it failed at what it, I think it was supposed to do. I think it's a really odd choice to be the second single for the album. Um, it almost feels to me like a parody of a ballad. Like it's not it's a ballad, but if you listen to the lyrics and. It, I don't know. It's just Ozzy doing a ballad in this regard. It just sounds funny to me. Like, I, seriously, the song has always made me laugh. <laughs> and I don't think that's maybe what it was trying to achieve. But maybe then again, maybe, maybe that's what it was trying to go for. Like, I, I think I, I've always enjoyed it in spite of it not being a very good song. Because it, it's kind of funny. It's you know it's one of those songs that it it, it it like you said doesn't make sense. I mean you think about it. I mean he's done ballads before. He did Goodbye to Romance, and that came across well. This this does not. <laughs> no, this, this does not at all. And I, that's why I think this was Bob Daisley's attempt at trying to get a hit single, very similar to um, uh, Rainbow before they were able to get something good and they never really had a ballad. You know, there's a couple of bands out there that they they tried to get the ballad. They tried to do the poison thing. They tried to do the Motley Crue home sweet home thing and it just failed miserably. Because it does, that's not who they were. So this was just Ozzy's like, hey, you know, the record comes like, hey, we need a song to go up against Motley Crue. We need we need a song to to, to be just like poison, you know. You know, I won't forget because in in this when this song came out, or actually when this album came out, Poison was not out yet. So Motley Crue had broken with. Uh, oh no, I don't even think they broke with uh, with um, Home Sweet Home yet because this is nineteen eighty three. Mm-hmm. So Home Sweet Home didn't come out for another what year and a half. So yeah, yeah. So they, they're they're trying to, to to capitalize on other ballad type songs that were that were out at the time. But it's that's it's still the, the what they're trying to achieve with the song, and it just it just did not work at all. Uh, it just makes me think like if you're if you're so tired, just go take a nap. <laughs> you know, <laughs> just take a nap. I know, right? So it's okay. <laughs> the next song is "Slow Down," um, which is kind of weird. <laughs> this song picks up the pace again. Uh, it's got a killer riff. I like the vocal melody, um, and. It's again highlighted the mix with a lot of keyboards, and the keyboards play another heavy role in this song, and it, as it has throughout the album. Um, 
the breakdown right before the solo is a nice change of pace, so that's pretty cool. Um, Jake's solo in this one isn't over the top, and it's and, and, and it's not filled with a million notes, so it has a nice touch to it. Uh, I think he does a great job on the song, even though the song itself, you know, for, for what it's worth on the album, it's almost kind of, we're, we're getting to the end of the album, here's our fast song, you know? Yeah, I mean, it's more of a straight-up, fast-paced rocker. Um, you know, it's got a really great audible bass line, which I think kind of highlights the track. Um, you know, to me, I, I really like this track a lot. I think it's, easy, you know, it's it's one of those that it wouldn't necessarily have to be played by Ozzy. Like, I can see a lot of other bands playing this song. Um, this was not on the European release of this album. It was only on the U.S. release. And there was another song called Spider that was the final track on the album for uh, the European release. Um, so I guess I can see why, you know, that is that it's kind of more generic in that regard um, being on the U.S. release. But at the same time, I really like the song as a whole. It Then again, like I said, it it could have been played by, hell, it could have been played by Motley Crue or somebody, and I would have enjoyed it, I think. And I, th- I, I think what takes it away from me on it is, is all the keyboards. I think it could probably be a much better song without all the extra keyboards on it. Mm. So... Um, and, okay. I, and I'll mention a little bit more about that in a second. Um, Waiting for Darkness is the last song in the album. Um, and this song is kind of weird for me. Um, it it's almost feels like it's supposed to be that creepy, scary song from Ozzy. Um, it never really gets to that level. Um, it's got a cool pre-chorus hook in it. Um, and I like the interplay between Jake and the string arrangement. But there's a thing about it that almost feels like this is like... I don't know, like a theme song to some sort of kind of horror movie that just really wasn't very horror. I don't know. that That's the vibe I get from this song. It's kind of weird. I don't know. What do you feel like? It does feel like it could be a movie track or something like that. Right. Um, I I think it plays into a lot of the themes that, that we've seen. So it kind of fits with some of that vibe. It has a lot more atmospheric elements in it and a darker tone. Um the instrumental section in the middle has like is really where that kind of mostly shows up like that just atmospheric sound um i think it's a good track and it's a good ending to the album it's certainly better than like these last two tracks to me are better than some of the stuff that came before it so especially so tired i think that's probably the worst track on the album <laughs> but but i like i said i still enjoy it cuz it's so cheesy um, but as a whole, I think, you know, I think it wraps things up nicely. Yeah. It, it, it's not, it's not bad in that regards. Um, overall, this album for me is, is pretty good, you know, and, but it could have been so much better. You know, it's, it's one of these things where it's like they had that to me, it's like you have the songs and you have these arrangements and you messed it up. You had the opportunity to make this even bigger. And it just kind of, I don't know, the 80s and, and drugs took over. I don't know what what may or may not have been the issue. But there were some things that were just lacking. Um, and the production of this is so 80s. And, and to the point where the ultimate sin is even, is even more 80s than this album. Um, and 
one interesting side note on this. This is the only album to feature Tommy Aldridge on drums uh, for, for Ozzy on a studio album. And even though Tommy's face is featured on Diary of a Madman, he did not play on it. Uh, he played on this one. He's on the album sleeve on the inside, and then he's not on the video. He actually left the band shortly after the recording of the album. So it's one of these weird things that Tommy shows up here and there, and but he's either credited or not credited, but he's, he's there or not there. <laughs> it's a Vinnie Vincent situation. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, <clears throat> Carmine uh, Apiece is the one who actually joined the band and is in the one in the video. And it was almost, it almost became a partnership between Carmine and Ozzy. Uh, and I think what ended up happening was Carmine was getting a little bit too businessy and Sharon cut him off. <laughs> and anytime you get close to Sharon, it's just like, she'll cut you. She'll cut you. <laughs> you don't want to mess with Sharon. No. Let's just put it that way. Yeah, not at all. Um, yeah, I mean, this was a tough album to follow, you know, the death of Randy Rhodes. Ozzy's attitude was in the shitter because, you know, he he was depressed. Um, you know, who knows if Randy was going to leave after this uh, the last album or not. You know, there's there's stories where he was kind of tired of things and wanted to, to move on and, and do his own thing. And so, you know, there could have been that, but... At the same time, I think it would have been better if he had just moved on, you know, in 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 the regard of like how Ozzy was affected, you know, because he was just severely depressed after that. His drug use got much worse, um, and I and that showed because after Ult- I mean before Ultimate Sin was was uh, written, he actually went to rehab, got out, and then Jakey e. Lee had presented him with tons of material that he had written before that album so um there was definitely a different theme like i think the guys there was there was probably some over looming feeling of you know they were being controlled by you know whatever kind of contract they had to sign to (laughs) sign over their rights as songwriters and it's, I think it shows a, a big difference with what comes up with Ultimate Sin. Um, so, you know, c- coming off of Randy's death and those two amazing albums, I think Jake came in and did a great job. But I also feel like this is a little bit of a formative album after a major tragedy. Uh, I agree with you in that regards. And what's amazing about it, too, is that this doesn't come very long after Randy's death. I mean, Randy died in March of 1982 and they continued the tour because they had the dates, you know, Brad Gillis joined the band for a bit. Um, they continued touring and then they went to go record an album. Um, but then everything fell apart. Rudy Sarzo left, uh, Brad Gillis left. So it was just Tommy Aldridge, Don Airy and, and Ozzy. So Ozzy had to look for a guitar player, and that's where they ended up picking up Jake. So there was just a while spent there. And even though, when you think about it, I mean, it was recorded in early 1983. Which is, so essentially, it's only a year or so before they go back into the studio to record the album. Whereas going from Ultimate, from Bark at the Moon to Ultimate Sin, there was a good you know, two and a half, a little bit more than two and a half years between the, the two albums. And... It, it shows to some degree, but at the same time, there's a ton of similarities. And again, that has a lot to do with the songwriter. 
Again, going into the ultimate sin, Bob Daisley has his hand all over it. So, the ultimate sin was released on February 22nd, 1986. It was again released on Epic Records. This time, instead of just being Epic CBS, it was Epic CBS Associated Records. Uh, it was recorded at the Townhouse Studios and AIR Studios in London, England, and Studio Devout in Paris, France. And it was produced by Ron Nevison. This album went on to sell 2 million copies in the U.S. And if you read notes in Wikipedia, you'll notice that this is the one album that has literally been disregarded by Ozzy throughout his entire career. Um, even though it did get remastered, it was the only album not to get re-remastered and reissued for the second time. Um, and in, in to, to Ozzy's credit, he says he would love the opportunity to remix this album if he could. Now, mind you, with all the downtime that he's had in the last couple of years, maybe he should have done by, you know done that by now, but he hasn't. <laughs> um, so this album, like I said, came out about two and a half, a little bit, maybe two months, two years and eight months, nine months. I, I can't remember exactly. After Bark at the Moon. But because Bob Daly's, Bob Daisley's involved, there's a lot of similarities. So let's start it off. You You take over here, buddy. All right. Well, you mentioned that Bob Daisley was involved. He had a lot of the songwriting credits, but he actually didn't play on the album. And that was due to a falling out with uh, you know who. (laughs) (laughs) So to start the album off, we've got The Ultimate Sin. This is a great track and one of Jake's best solos. Um, It's one of those solos that builds to like this point, you know, it just keeps going up and up and up. And it's, you know, it's excellent. It's a bit heavier and darker than the previous openers for the Aussie albums. And it's got that punchy bass that's a driving force. Almost like, um, not quite in the same way, but you know how um, Walk has from Pantera has this attitude that you can just feel the attitude. Mm-hmm. And that's the way I kind of feel about Ultimate Sin. Not to the same degree, because Walk just has this overwhelming attitude to it. But... I think maybe you get what I'm saying where it just has this like uh cachet to yeah, it, you know, yeah. like a strut. Uh, yeah, definitely. I mean it has a lot to do with the, the, the drum pattern that, that uh you know um Randy's playing on it. Randy Castillo that is. Um so yeah, it definitely is uh is a is a, a cool song in that regards. It's got a real strong riff. Um chorus has got a great hook. I mean, you know, the ultimate sin is 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 a good song. It's not a burner, you know, so it's not one of these, you know, uh, in, you know, first song on the album, like, like, it's not like Bark at the Moon that just rips, but it's, it, it gets you into it. And, and it's one of these, where it keeps your head bopping. And I think that's, that's the strength of this song. And I, I agree with you. Jake Solo's great on it. And on top of that, it's, it's minimal. It's not like he's playing, you know, a bajillion notes. Or anything like that. No, but he, it's it's pretty simple, but it just builds right. up, and it's it's like it takes you to a high point. Right, exactly. Which is awesome. I, I like it too. So it's a, it's it's a it's a good way to start the album. All right, track two is "Secret Loser." It's a fast-paced track with a great riff. Um, to me, it's one of my favorite Aussie tracks, and it's definitely an underrated one. Um, I I wish this was one that showed up on his live tours because. It's a great track. You know, 
I, I like the song a lot. It 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 it, it it's, it's a faster paced song. It definitely picks the pace up, you know, on the album. Uh, it's got a great melody to it. Um, it's, the solo on here is killer. I mean, Jake really lets loose mm-hmm. on it. Um, the only thing I don't like about it is, is like, why is Ozzy rec- referring to himself as a loser? You know, and I think that may have something to do with why they don't play it or they didn't play it at the time. Because there's something about the song that's just like, I don't know if the chorus is lacking or something. But, you know, the the whole song itself is pretty good, except that chorus. It, it just doesn't, it, there's no hook to it to me. You know, it, there's a little bit of a hook, but not enough to totally grab you. Although the main chunks of the song are really good. So there's, there's it's almost like a weird counterbalance to it i don't know yeah i mean i can see why the lyrically it might be one of those things that um people don't really quite grasp i mean unless you dive into the lyrics like like we do a lot of times where we you know are big fans of the band so we try to find it sometimes it doesn't have that mass appeal but yeah it's man it's a killer riff it's just so good All right, so track three is Never Know Why. Um, To me, this is essentially Ozzy's version of We Rock by Dio. Mm. Um, (laughs) The the chorus says We Rock about 100 times. Of course, I'm kidding. It's not the same song, but um, a year later after Dio's We Rock, it's just kind of funny. Another song about how Ozzy was being demonized by the media. We mentioned that on the last album. He seems to have a a track like this, you know, quite often throughout his career um, because he did have that image of being, uh, you know, somebody that that was much worse than he actually is. You know, there there are other musicians out there that have a much more prolific and uh, infamous career than he does. A lot of Ozzy was was myths and rumors. So, um, you know, it's it's a good song. It's it's a slow plotter. Uh, to me, the best part is the outro solo, which just kicks ass. Yes. Jay, this that's the one thing about these two albums that you cannot say anything bad about the guitar solos on any of these songs because Jake's mm-hmm. Jake's playing on these two albums is outstanding and it just from one song to the next it keeps just getting better and but the what what fails him I guess you could say is the songs you know the overall even though a majority of them are his I, I don't necessarily think he's the arranger, okay? You know, because Bob Daisley's so prolific in that. Um, you know, Jake will come up with a riff and they'll say, okay, we can use a riff here. We can put this here. We can do that. And then we'll turn this into the chorus and stuff like that. And that's where, you know, Jake may get left behind a little bit at the time because he, he became a very good songwriter later on. Um, but not being, you know, again, being green to the team i guess you know from from bark at the moon and and yeah he's now it's his second album but it's still a matter of he's still not an industry vet yet you know Mm -hmm. um so jake is is doing his thing and he's got killer riffs all throughout these two albums but sometimes the arrangements is what falls short this song uh like you said the whole we rock thing is kind of funny it's it, it makes it cheesy to me uh, it's got a it's yeah. got a great riff and melody, you know, but the the chorus just kills it 
for me. Somehow it's way cheesier than Dio's We Rock. <laughs> yeah. Because, again, it, it has everything to do with the, the chorus and the arrangement. You know, and I, th- I think it also has to do with who Ozzy was versus, or is, I guess, versus who Dio was. You know, especially maybe at the time was, I think is the best way to, to say it. Because Ozzy had this image of he was the Prince of Darkness, where Dio had a very different image, like that was kind of associated with like dragons. And, mm-hmm. you know, so him saying we rock, it seemed fitting. Ozzy saying we rock almost feels like fake and kind of cheesy. Well, but what's funny about it too is like you think about how Ronnie sang, okay? Ronnie's, mm-hmm. you know, all of five foot two and he's like, we rock. You know, you hear the gravel in yes. his voice. You, and then Ozzy sings, <laughs> we rock. You know, he's got that high pitch. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so. and, and his vocals are kind of dead in this album. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it, Actually, both albums. And I don't know if that has to do with his his attitude or his drug use or whatever at the time, but I know I have more to say on that later. (laughs) All right. So track four is "Thank God for the Bomb." Uh, You know, it's a really cool track. Um, Something there's some interesting riffing and vocal effects, and it does kind of a good job of keeping you on your toes, which is also the lyrical theme. You know, having to do with the Cold War, never knowing kind of what's next, what's going to happen. And I think that was something that was kind of thrown into this track. It also takes us back to some of the anti-war stance of Black Sabbath in the 70s, which is, you know, something that Ozzy had been associated with for a long period of time. So it's in a way it's a throwback, but at the same time, it's very 80s, very of the time. And, you know, I think it's... It's just one of those like it's got a cool um, it's got a cool chorus so I, I enjoy the track. I, I I love the riff on this one, um, and I agree with you. The lyrics are very much a product of the time. This album has a lot of it's very topical of the times. You know, uh, Killer of mm-hmm. Giants, The Ultimate Sin, and Thank God for the Bomb. There's a link to all those. Um, and, and thank God, I mean, people, like, if you just look at the song title on the surface, you'd be like, what do you mean, thank God for the bomb? But when you listen to the lyrics, you understand, if this is the only thing that's going to prevent us from killing each other, well, then thank God we have it. You know, that's exactly what he is saying, you know? Yeah, essentially, we're not using it, and it's a, it's a um, deterrent. Right, exactly. Now, for yeah. me, uh, at the time this album came out, I was, uh, literally, it was a week before my 17th birthday. And growing up in the 80s and being a teenager throughout the 80s, that was something that was in the back of every kid's mind. The bomb, the Cold War, you know, is this going to happen? You know, and so songs like this, this this was really very, very current events at the time. Uh, And it's, it's one of those things where it's like, you know, with, with Metallica's Fight Fire with Fire. Uh, you know, Ozzy's Thank God for the Bomb. And there's there's a ton of other songs that are out there from this time period that will hearken those days for the for the kids that grew up during that time period. And it was it was tough. You didn't know what was going to happen, even though you went about your life in a, in a, on the daily basis like nothing was going to happen. But you know, you get home and you hear, start hearing the news, and it's like, oh shit! You know, something's going on here. Someone's gonna flinch. 
So, but regardless, the song itself is pretty cool. Like we said, it's got a killer riff, you know, and the, and the lyrics are very topical. So, all right. So track five is never. Um, you know, to me, this is one of the weakest uh, songs on the album. Um, intro riff is definitely the best part, and it makes it feel like this is just going to take off, and then it kind of doesn't go anywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, to some degree, it feels pretty generic, and to the first part of the solo, so there's two sections of the solo, and the first one is so drowned out, it almost sounds like Jake is playing underwater, <laughs> and then... And then it gets into a better portion of it, but it's it's also one of the weaker solos on the album. Um, he, I don't feel like Jake really has any weak solos, but it's not one of the best. And, so, and it, it goes along with the fact that the song is not one of the strongest songs in the album. So, mm-hmm. you know, sometimes you're not inspired when the song is not inspirational to you. Um, yeah, so, why, why waste a good solo <laughs> on a mediocre song? Exactly. Um, but again, like at the beginning, the soloing that he does do is pretty cool. You know, at, at, right? The, the, the intro riffing. The, very, the intro right. riff. That, yeah, exactly. like I said, best part of the song. Exactly. And, uh, and then just skip it about 30 seconds. <laughs> right, and then from there on, <laughs> it's like, all right, next. Um, because it is, it, there's nothing memorable to me about it. So I agree with you on that one. It's a, it's a, it's a pass. All right, so the next track is Lightning Strikes. Um, I like most of the song until the chorus. Um, <laughs> and the chorus, is it's really catchy, um, but it sounds like this song was written for Kiss. <laughs> it, it, it doesn't... <laughs> It doesn't sound like an Aussie song, I, and I think that's my problem. I get it. that. I can, I can see that now, now that you bring that up. Like, and, and when I say it sounds like it's written for Kiss, like, so the, the chorus especially sounds like it's written for Kiss, but then the whole thing does too. Like, you could easily send it over and have Gene Simmons sing this song, and it would be perfect. <laughs> You're right. It, it, now that you say that, I could totally see that. Um, it's it's got an awesome riff. It's this the the riff in the song is heavy as shit, you know. Yeah, it's not a bad song. It's just not an Aussie right. song. Right, and the melody of the verse is good too. But I agree with you. It's the chorus that makes the song fall short. Um, you know, so the rest of the song kind of has to overcome the shortcomings of the chorus, which it kind of almost does. And and Jake. It helps it with a really melodic solo that blends a, a million notes into a really good melody, you know, which is which is one of those things. Like you know, for the shredders in the '80s, the one thing that they did not have was they did not have melody. They had a million notes, but they had zero feeling behind them. And that's the one thing that that stood out about Jake is Jake had feeling behind it. Um, and I, I a lot of it has to do. I think he has that blues background because he can play some good blues. And and that's why he can shred, but he has some feeling behind it, and that that was one of the things about the solo in this out and this song that's really really good. Yeah, like like I said, it's it's not a bad song. It just so throws me off because it's it doesn't feel like an Aussie song. So moving on to Killer of Giants, uh, this is another anti-war song. You kind of mentioned that when we were talking about "Thank God for the Bomb," um, the the solo more than fits the track, and it 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 fits in perfectly 
with this track and it builds up accordingly like it's it's it it just integrates so well it might be jake's best solo as a member of ozzy's band this is easily one of the best tracks on the album i i wrote down here the ballad that's what it says on my notes and then this mm-hmm. and then and what i like about it is that it's an ozzy ballad it's like goodbye to romance it's not a sappy love song yes and but yet at the same time it's a slow song but it's done Ozzy style, and that is what's good about the song. This this song, I, I agree with you, is probably one of the best songs in the album. Um, and you know, it again, like as you mentioned, song based on on current events, a killer chorus, pun intended. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it's a great song, you know, and and for being a ballad, you know, it to me it's better than Goodbye to Romance. It's better than um, what's the song that's on uh, You Can't Kill Rock and Roll that's on Diary of Madman you know it's better than So Tired and it's better than you know You're No Different or uh, yeah You're No Different okay most songs are better than So Tired <laughs> <laughs> so you know, ballad wise it's, it's, it's just yeah, it's, it's yeah. the best ballad he's got so far and I and that's great you know and it's it it, it definitely fits well at that spot in the album as well too um so because side two is so much better than side one uh if you're looking at it in terms of a record um or a cassette because that's seems to be popular again um on the cd at this point in the cd it's it's still it does well because you have lightning strikes which should have been really really awesome and so you're kind of like oh it's got a really cool riff and you're kind of rocking into it and then Killer of Giants comes in, and even though it's slow, it, it 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 grabs you. I like that. I think it's it's again an underrated track from Ozzy. Um, the next track is "Fool Like You." Uh, to me, it's a lot like "Ultimate Sin." You know, it has a very similar tone. The bass kind of plods and thumps along in the same way. Um, the the verse builds and guides the song along. And the outro solo, another outro solo from Jake, it just kicks ass. Um, it's it's not a standout track, but it's a good one. I like the harmonics that he uses in the, in the intro. Um, mm-hmm. It's a good use of them. That's pretty cool. Um, but it can't save the genericness of this song, not in my opinion. Um, the riff is good, but it just kind of lends itself to a kind of like a stock song. Yeah. And that's kind of what I was getting at. Is it's good. It's not great. It's good. Right. Now, funny yeah. thing is the melody, there's a little bit of the melody in the verse, and it's only it's only the like the first half of the verse, but that first half of the verse to me has a very similar uh pacing or 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 uh I guess pacing would be the best way. Uh the same melody to me as Turning Japanese by the Vapors. Um, <laughs> oh, that's interesting. And, and, uh, and if you listen to it, it's only the first part of the, the, the like, if there's a whole line, let's say, you know, 10 words, five of the words have that, mm-hmm. that the way he sings in, in uh, turning Japanese. So, like I said, the song is kind of, eh, stock, it's not great. It's all right. Move on. <laughs> gotcha. <laughs> I mean, to me, it's not bad. It's not one that I'm I'm going to go out of my way to listen to, but I'm, I'm not going to skip if I'm listening to it. Right. You know, the album. 
All right, and then we get to track nine, which is, in my opinion, one of Ozzy's best of all time, uh, Shot in the Dark. And why are Ozzy's vocals so much more alive on this track than anything else he's sung here? I, I, I don't understand it. It's like he woke up after <laughs> after eight, hour, eight tracks. Um, not just one of the best tracks on the album, but... To, to me, like I said, one of Ozzy's best, period. Uh, it's got a killer solo. It's got an excellent pre-chorus that leads right into the catchy and memorable chorus. Um, the riff is mellow and dark, and it definitely fits the vibe of the lyrics. This, this to me, is like where Ozzy was going in his career. And it's not cheesy, it's not goofy, but it has that, like, dark... Um, prince of darkness feeling to it and it doesn't date itself to the 80s the production does <laughs> well, the production we're not talking about the production yeah, we're talking about no, the song the production is crap on this album yeah you know and that's the downside the, the song but. is awesome uh you know i wrote here the single the hit it's such a good riff and jake is playing pinch harmonics in it which is a preview of what would end up coming on later when zach took over on guitar you know, Zach plays uh, like a pinch harmonic every five chords. So, <laughs> um, the, <laughs> five <laughs> every every two. I know, right? The melodies and the hooks on this are really, really, really good. Uh, this is an excellent song, and I agree with you. There is a difference on this song than any other song on the album. And I wrote here, you can sense that they worked very hard on making this song as good as it could have been, and. It shows that song stands out production-wise, even though it's got a similar... Because basically when they put the... They already recorded the song. So when they put it together in the mix and they go to do the final mastering, it all sounds the same. But you can tell that this one is better than the rest. What I don't understand is why is this the last song on the album? Why is this song number nine? This should have been, you know, like coming out of Ultimate Sin, it should have been number two. Get rid of Secret Loser. Or if, if you want to keep Secret Loser, get rid of Never Know Why. That could have come later. you know. But Shot in the Dark should have been on side one when you're listening to the album. I mean, it was almost like they threw this song away. And it just so happened to be the one that they worked on the hardest. You know, That's the way it feels like to me. Yeah, it's, a, it's an odd placement to be sure. Um, I, I don't know why sometimes bands place their best song... At the very end, I don't. I don't understand that, but it. It's not the only time it's happened. There's a lot of other albums that do the same thing, and I'll never get it. I, I've heard of of some where they didn't think the song would be as big as it ended up being. I and I've heard that before. Like they put it out as a B side, and the DJ flips it over, and all of a sudden it's a hit single. You know, I've heard of that, and that's mm -hmm. understandable. If the band doesn't think it's worth it, sometimes it just so happens that the people, the fans, think it is, and all of a sudden it's like, whoa, we got a hit on our hands. Um, because when you're producing, so when you're recording, sometimes you're like, yeah, you know, it's it's cool. You don't realize what you have in your hands sometimes. Um, this one, I think they knew ahead of time, and it, but just for whatever reason, because I think this was almost left off the album for for. Or either that, oh, that's right. It, it was left off of re-releases because of the the authorship issues 
uh, of legal dis uh, the legal dispute between Phil Susan and and Ozzy. Again, it's not between Ozzy; it's between Sharon and everybody else. <laughs> yeah, well, Ozzy's part of it. Yeah, so. it's unfortunate. I mean, it works out that way, but. So to recap the album, um, while the album does not have very good production, um, it has some really good songs, and that's that's what really is the driving force here is the songs. They're the star. Um, they, like I said, they lose a point for production. They lose another point because Ozzy really isn't very alive in this album. Um, but the riffs feel more confident as a whole. Um, like I said, overall... Ozzy's vocals seem a little bit tired, but really no more than they did in Bark at the Moon. So I I wouldn't say one is worse than the other as far as that aspect of the, the recording. Okay, so then which one is your favorite? Which one do you think is better than the other? Um, For me, you know, it kind of surprised me going back because I have, you know, different memories of listening to these all throughout the years. And I guess I always thought that I liked Bark at the Moon better. But going back and listening to it again, I mean, I got to say, Ultimate Sin um, did it for me. I just, as a whole, tracks like Killer Giants, Ultimate Sin, um, Thank God for the Bomb, Shot in the Dark, for me, Secret Loser. I mean, I think all of those are really good tracks. And... Um, it kind of outweighed what Bark at the Moon had a, had going for it. And it also felt like a more complete album where Bark at the Moon felt like more of a band trying to get back on their feet. Right. Re, re, I don't know if you remember when we talked about doing this episode, you dismissed Ultimate Sin. I did. You know, you dismiss it and you're like, why? Why? We know it's going to be Bark at the Moon. I mean, it was almost like that kind of dismissal. And I said to you, think when you listen to it, you may change your opinion. <laughs> I I think ultimate. No, you were right. You were one hundred percent. I right. think ultimate. Uh, to me, ultimate sin is the better the better album. Uh, it, I agree with you. It's more cohesive. Um, it doesn't have as much cheese in it. Like you know, it doesn't have so tired. And you're no different in it. Um, even though I just remembered tracks like "Bark at the Moon" and "Slow Down" mm-hmm. um, being ones that I've always kind of have stuck with me, but as a whole, like that doesn't equate to a better album. Right. I mean, I really like "Bark at the Moon." I really like "Rock and Roll Rebel," and I really like "Center of Eternity." But as a, as a cohesive album, to me, the ultimate sin is just much better. And uh, I even like the album cover. It's really damn cool. <laughs> so. Um, yeah, my votes for ultimate sin. So this time we agree. Um, so if anybody has any disagreements, you know, put it in the comments, let us know on Instagram, let us know on Facebook, let us know on YouTube when it, when the episode goes up or send us an email at debatingmetal at gmail.com. <laughs> All right. Um, that brings us to our big four Ozzy songs for this week. Um, we have not done, we've done, no, we haven't done any Ozzy in, in any of these episodes. So this is really like a, a, a first time, even though we did Ozzy versus Ronnie James Dio and we did Black Sabbath's Greatest Hits, we, we never really did anything about Ozzy solo. And so this is, this is really going to highlight that. I think you went first last week. 
So Yep. All right. So why don't you go this week? All right. So I get to go first this week, and my big four Ozzy solo songs. Um, number four, the song Gets Me Through, which is the lead track off of the Down to Earth album. I really like that song. It, it's, it's like a, a, a moment in time about Ozzy's career. And he's just trying to say, man, I'm just, I'm just a normal guy, you know. I'm just doing my thing, you know. And and I really like. It. I mean, it's a heavy track. Um, it's it's super cool. I, I I like that song a lot. Um, number three for me, "Bark at the Moon." Um, that is a killer track. I mean, the way it opens up that album in America is, I mean, it's it's hard to beat that, and it's just a really really good song it's well done it shows off jake's abilities right off the bat it's like here look at my new guitar player boom and so it 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 did the job and it's a really good track number two i think this song the first time i heard it became one of my favorites like instantaneously a lot of it had to do with the controversy at the time but when you listen to the song deeply you understand why suicide solution Number two for me, I love the riff. I love the production of it. Uh, I love the fact that it's, you know, for whatever, what anyone wants to say, it's an anti-suicide song. It's basically trying to tell you this is what's going to happen if you keep doing this to yourself. And so, um, you know, in music, there's always, there's always a subtlety to it that some people just don't get sometimes. They'd rather go what, what, what's ever bold in their face and... They don't get the subtleties in songs, so I I love this song. And number one for me, I don't know what it is about this song, but it really, really just grabs me as soon as I hear it. And it's the first song that 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 Ozzy put out. I don't know. That's my number one song. I love that song. I love the the bass line, the intro, the the Chinese gong going off in the background. I love that song. That's a good list. I bet your list is much different than mine. It is quite a bit different. Uh, my number four is one that you have in common, um, is Bark at the Moon, of Bark at the Moon. Um, it's one of those those tracks that just has such good energy. It's memorable. It's catchy. It's hard not to be you know, up high on a list of Aussie songs. Uh, my number three is Crazy Train from Blizzard of Oz. Um it's you know it's overplayed i'm tired of hearing it at at baseball games um but at the same time like it's such an amazing track and since i don't hear it all the time anymore i don't listen to the radio i just listen to what i what i want to listen to um it doesn't come up in that same regard and i i still love the track and it shows off you know just how great randy was and you know just you know iconic track from ozzy um number two is one we mentioned a little earlier shot in the dark i'm a huge fan of this song um children of bottom did a cover of it years ago which kind of brought my attention back to it i had listened to it you know i like i said or like you said earlier i kind of dismissed ultimate sin to some degree and this was one that I always liked and had always included on my list, but 
to some degree, I kind of forgot about it for a while. And then when I heard the Children of Bottom cover, it brought my attention back to it and it put it back on my list for me. And I've, I've just always loved it since. And my number one is the first Aussie song I ever heard and still my favorite to this day, which is Over the Mountain off of Diary of a Madman. Um, I, I absolutely love that track. And um, I think it's one of, of uh, Randy's best. It's it's such a killer opener. It's so good. Um, and then Fozzie did a cover of it as well, which was really good. Yeah, which I, is I, funny. I like Fozzie's version. Yeah, I I love both. And um, you know, it's it's one of those like you know, Randy's career was so short, but he had such great songs during that time. So um, it's it's a memorable one for me. This one was a little difficult for me because a lot of the songs, they're, they're all so good and they, they, they're, they're good all next to each other. Like, you know, Mr. Crowley, Crazy Train. Yeah, that was a hard one for me to leave off, you know, honestly, Mr. Crowley. Exactly. Yeah. Flying High Again, Diary of a Madman. The performances on those songs are so good. Uh, you know, No More Tears. You know, those there's so many good songs that Ozzy has, you know, especially in the beginning. And it's hard. You know, like it's not that I didn't want to include Crazy Train of Mine. It's not like I did it on purpose, because as much as I like the song Crazy Train and how good it is, I like I don't know more. And I'd mm. like Suicide Solution more, but I love that first album. So, you know, it, it's all there together. Um, I I almost picked over the mountain at one point. You know, so that that tells you how good that song is. You know, I and I, I always used to think that was Tommy Aldridge doing that. And and when I realized it was Lee Kerslake, I'm like, man, that's a really badass drummer. You know, Lee, sure. Lee was really good. You don't hear it on the first album, but you really hear it on the second album. So, anyhow. That, folks, is our Big Four Aussie songs for this week, and that brings us to the end of today's episode. And as a reminder, you can find us and all of our previous episodes on iTunes, Podbean, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, and most every podcast platform. So don't forget to click the subscribe button. That's right. And if you enjoyed what you heard today, be sure to check us out on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube, and send us an email to debatingmetal at gmail.com. If you use Spotify, be sure to check out our playlists from our greatest hit episodes as well. Make sure to tune into the next episode when we spark up another exciting metal debate. On behalf of Kenneth and myself, stay safe, and remember, always turn it up to 11. See ya. (laughs) 